Welcome to Reformed in Public. Please visit our show notes page at anchor.fm forward slash reformed in public. We continue with the reading of The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. This work is considered public domain. 8. Christ teaches them what a great and dreadful evil it is to be given up to one's heart's desires. It is indeed a dreadful evil, one of the most hideous and fearful evils that can befall any man on the face of the earth, for God to give him up to his heart's desires. A kindred truth is that spiritual judgments are more fearful than any outward judgments. Now, once the soul understands these things, a man will be content when he crosses him in his desires. You are crossed in your desires, and so you are discontented and vexed and fretted about. Is that your only misery, that you are crossed in your desires? No, no, you are infinitely mistaken. The greatest misery of all is for God to give you up to your heart's lust and desires, to give you up to your own counsels. So you have it in Psalm 81, 11, 12, 11 and 12. But my people would not hearken to my voice, and Israel would none of me. What then? So I gave them up unto their own heart lust, and they walked in their own counsels. A quick note, I apologize, there may be a typo in that which I just read. Oh, let me not have such a misery as that, said Bernard, for to give me what I would have, to give me my heart's desires, is one of the most hideous judgments in the world. In scripture, we have no certain evident sign of a reprobate. We cannot say, unless we knew a man had committed the sin against the Holy Ghost, that he is a reprobate, for we do not know what God may work upon him. But the nearer of all and the blackest sign of a reprobate is this, for God to give a man up to his heart's desires, all the pain of diseases, all the calamities that can be thought of in this world are no judgments in comparison of this. Now, when the soul comes to understand this, it cries out, Why am I so troubled that I have not got my desires? There is nothing that God conveys his wrath There is nothing that God conveys his wrath more through than a prosperous condition. I remember reading of a Jewish tradition about Uzziah. When God struck him with leprosy, they say that the beams of the sun darted upon the forehead of Uzziah, and he was struck with leprosy in this way. The scripture says indeed that the priest looked upon him, but they say that there was a special light and beam of the sun on his forehead that revealed the leprosy to the priest. And they say that was the way of conveying of it. Whether that was true or not, I am sure that this is true, that the strong beams of the sun of prosperity upon many men make them to be leprous. Would any poor man in the country have been discontented that he was not in Uzziah's position? 
He was a great king, I, but there was the leprosy in his forehead. The poor man might say, Though I live meanly in the country, yet I thank God my body is whole and sound. Would not any man rather have homespun and skins of beast to clothe himself with, to tan to have satin and velvet that had plague in it? The Lord conveys the plague of his curse through prosperity as much as through anything in the world. And therefore, when the soul comes to understand this, this makes it quite quiet and content. This makes it quiet and content. And then, spiritual judgments are the greatest judgments of all. The Lord lays such and such an affliction upon my outward wealth. But what if he had taken away my life? A man's health is a greater mercy than his wealth. The Lord, I'm just going to reread that. And then, spiritual judgments are the greatest judgments of all. The Lord lays such and such an affliction upon my outward wealth. But what if he had taken away my life? A man's health is a greater mercy than his wealth. And you, poor people, should consider that. Is the health of a man's body better than his wealth? What then is the health of a man's soul? That is a great deal better. The Lord has inflicted external judgments, but he has not inflicted spiritual judgments on you. He has not given you up to hardness of heart and taken away the spirit of prayer from you in your afflicted condition. Oh, then, be of good comfort. Though you have outward afflictions upon you, still your soul, your more excellent part, is not afflicted. Now, when the soul comes to understand this, that here lies the sore wrath of God, to be given up to one's desires, and to have spiritual judgments, this quiets him and contents him, though outward afflictions are on him. Perhaps one of a man's children has the fit of an ache, agu, or toothache, but his next-door neighbor has the plague, or all his children have died of it. Now, shall he be so discontented that his children have toothache with when his neighbor's children are dead? Think thus, Lord, you have laid an afflicted condition upon me, but, Lord, you have not given me the plague of a hard heart. Now, if you take these eight things before mentioned and lay them together, you may well apply that scripture in the 29th of Isaiah, the last verse, where it says, They also that erred in spirit shall come to understanding, and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. Have there been any of you, as I fear many may be found, who have erred in spirit? even in regard of this truth that we are now preaching of, and many who have murmured, Oh, that this day you might come to understand that Christ would bring you into his school and teach you understanding, and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. What doctrine shall they learn?
these doctrines that I have opened to you. And if you will but thoroughly study these lessons that I have set before your eyes, it will be a special help and means to cure your murmurings and repinings at the hand of God. And so you will come to learn Christian contentment. The Lord teach you thoroughly by his Spirit the lessons of contentment. I will only add one more lesson in the learning of contentment, and then I shall come to the fourth head, the excellence of contentment. 9. The nine and last lesson which Christ teaches those whom he instructs in this art of contentment is the right knowledge of God's providence, and therein are four things. 1. The universality of providence, wherein the soul must be thoroughly instructed in to come to this art of contentment, to understand the universality of providence, that is, how the providence of God goes through the whole world and extends itself to everything, not only that God by his providence rules the world and governs all things in general, but that it reaches to every detail, not only to order the great affairs of kingdoms, but it reaches to every man's family, it reaches to every person in the family, it reaches to every condition, ye, to every happening, to everything that falls out concerning you in every particular. Not one hair falls from your head, not a sparrow to the ground without the providence of God. Nothing befalls you, good or evil, but there is a providence of the infinite, eternal first being in that thing, and therein is God's infiniteness, that it reaches to the least things, to the least worm that is under your feet. Then much more does it reach to you, who are a rational creature. The providence of God is more special towards rational creatures than any others. Now to understand in a spiritual way the universality of providence in every particular happening from morning to night, every day, that there is nothing that befalls you, but there is a hand of God in it. This is from God, and is a great help to contentment. Every man will grant the truth of the thing, that it is so, but as the Apostle says in Hebrews 11.3, By faith we understand that the worlds were made. By faith we understand it. Why by faith? We can understand by reason that no finite thing can be from itself. And therefore, that the world could not be of itself, but we understand it by faith in another way than by reason. So whatever we understand of God in providence, yet when Christ ta takes you into his school, we come to understand it by faith in a better manner than we do by reason. 2. The efficacy that is in providence, that is, that the providence of God goes on in all things with strength and power, and will not to, to be altered by our power. Suppose we are discontented, and vexed, and troubled, and we fret and rage, yet we need not think we will alter the course of providence by our discontentment, by our discontent. 
Some of Job's friends, when they saw that he was impatient, said to him, Shall the earth be forsaken for thee, and shall the rock be removed out of his place? Job 18.4 So I may say to every discontented impatient heart, What shall the providence of God change its course for you? Do you think it such a weak thing that because it does not please you, it must alter its course? Whether or not you are content, the providence of God will go on. It has an efficacy of power, of virtue, to carry all things before it. Can you make one hair black or white with all the stir that you are making? When you are in a ship at sea, which has all its sails spread with a full gale of wind, and is swiftly sailing, can you make it stand still by running up and down in the ship? No more can you make the providence of God alter and change its course with your vexing and fretting. It will go on with power. Do what you can. Do but understand the power and efficacy of providence, and it will be a mighty means helping you to learn this lesson of contentment. 3. The infinite variety of the works of providence, and yet the order of things, one working towards another. There is an infinite variety of the works of God in an ordinary providence, and yet they all work in an ordinary way sorry, in an orderly way. We put these two things together, for God in his providence causes a thousand thousand things to depend upon another. There are an infinite number of wheels, as I may say, in the works of providence, put together all the works that ever God did from all eternity or ever will do, and they all make up but one work, and they have been as several wheels that have had their orderly motion to attain to the end that God from all eternity has appointed. We indeed look at things by pieces. We look at one detail and do not consider the relation that one thing has to another. But God looks at all things at, at once and sees the relation that one thing has to another. When a child looks at a clock, it looks first at one wheel and then at another wheel. He does not look at them all together or the dependence that one has upon another. But the workman has his eyes on them all together and sees the dependence of all one upon another, so it is in God's providence. Now, notice how this works to contentment. When a certain passage of providence befalls me, that is one wheel, and it may be that if this wheel were stopped, a thousand other things might come to be stopped by this. In a clock, in a clock, stop but one wheel, and you will stop every wheel, because they are dependent upon one another. So, when God has ordered a thing for the present to be thus and thus, how do you know how many things depend upon this thing? God may have some work to do twenty years hence that depends on this, ver- on this passage of providence that falls out this day or this week.
And here, by the way, we may see what a great deal of evil there is in discontent, for you would have God's providence altered in such and such a detail. Now, if it were only in that detail, and that had relation to nothing else, it would not be so much. But by your desire to have your will in such a detail, you may cross hand in a thousand, you may cross God in a thousand things that He has to bring about, because it is possible that a thousand things may depend upon that one thing that you would fain have otherwise than it is. It is just as if a child should cry out and say, Let that one wheel stop. Though he says only one wheel, yet if that were to stop, it is as much as if he should say they all must stop. So in providence, let but this one passage of providence stop it, is as much as if a thousand stopped. Let me therefore be quiet and content, for though I am crossed in some one particular thing, God attains his end. At least his end may be furthered in a thousand things by this one thing that I am crossed in. Therefore, let a man consider this is an act of providence. And how do I know what God is about to do? And how many things depend upon this providence? Now we are willing to be crossed in one thing, so that our friends may attain to what he desires in a thousand things. If you have a love of friendship to God, be willing to be crossed in a few things, that the Lord may have his work go on in general in a thousand other things. Now that is the third thing to be understood in God's providence which Christ teaches those whom he instructs in the art of contentment. 4. Christ teaches them the knowledge of providence, that is, the knowledge of God's unusual way in his dealings with his people more particularly. The other is the knowledge of God in his providence in general, but the right understanding of the way of God in his providence towards his people and saints is a notable lesson to help us in the art of contentment. If we once get to know a man's way and course, we may better suit and be content to live with him than before we got to know his way and course. When we come to live in a society with men and women, the men and women may be good, but till we come to know their way and course and disposition, many things may cross us, and we think they are very hard. But when we come to be acquainted with their way and spirits, then we can suit and cotton with them very well. The reason of our trouble is because we do not understand their way. So it is with you, those who are but as strangers to God, and do not understand the way of God, are troubled with the providences of God, and they think them very strange, and cannot tell what to make of them. But they do not understand the ordinary course and way of God towards his people. 
Sometimes, if a stranger comes into a family and sees a certain thing done, he wonders what is the matter, but those who are acquainted with it are not at all troubled by it. When servants first come together and do not know one another, they may be froward and discontented, but when they get to be acquainted with one another's ways, then they are more contented. Just so it is when we first come to understand God's ways. But you will say, what do you understand by God's ways? By that I mean three things, and when we get to know them, we shall not wonder so much at the providence of God, but be quiet and contented with them. 1. God's ordinary course is that his people in this world should be in an afflicted condition. God has revealed in his word, and we may there find he has set it down as his ordinary way, even from the beginning of the world to this day, but more especially in the times of the gospel, that his people here should be in an afflicted in, in, in an afflicted condition. Now, men who do not understand this stand and wonder to hear that the people of God are afflicted, and their enemies prosper in their way. When those who seek God in his way and seek for reformation are afflicted, wounded, and spoiled, and their enemies prevail, they wonder at it. But one who is in the school of Christ is taught by Jesus Christ, that God by his eternal counsels has set this as his course and way, to bring up his people in this world in an afflicted condition. Therefore, the apostle says, Account it not strange concerning the fiery trial. 1 Peter 4.12 We are not, therefore, to be discontented with it, seeing God has set such a course and way, and we know it is the will of God that it should be so. 2. Usually when God intends the greatest mercy to any of his people, he brings them into the lowest condition. God seems to go quite across and work in a contrary way. When he intends the greatest mercies to his people, he first usually brings them into a very low condition. If it is a bodily mercy, an outward mercy that he intends to bestow, he brings them physically low and outwardly low. If it is a mercy in their possessions that he intends to bestow, he brings them low in that and then raises them, and in their reputations he brings them low, therefore, and then raises them, and in their spirits God ordinarily brings their spirits low, and then raises their spirits. Usually the people of God, before their before the greatest comforts, have the greatest afflictions and sorrows. Now those who understand God's ways, think that when God brings his people into sad conditions, he is leaving and forsaking them. And that God does not intend any great good to them. I believe that's those who... There may be a typo where... He's intending to say, now those who understand God's ways don't think that when he brings his people into sad conditions, he is leaving and forsaking them, and that God does not intend any great good toward them. 
But a child of God who is instructed in this way of God is not troubled. My condition is very low, he says, but this is God's way when he intends the greatest mercy to bring men under the greatest afflictions. When he intended to raise Joseph to be second in the kingdom, God cast him into a dungeon a little before. So when God intended to raise David and set him upon the throne, he made him to be hunted as a partridge in the mountains, 1 Samuel 26-29. God dealt, with, God dealt this way with his son. Christ himself went into glory by suffering, Hebrews 2.10. And if God so deals with his own son, much more with his people. A little before daybreak, you will observe it is darker than it was any time before. So, God will make our conditions a little darker before the mercy comes. When God bestowed the last great mercy at Naseby, we were in a very low condition. God knew what he had to do beforehand. He knew that his time was coming for great mercies. It is the way of God to do so. There's a note here that says that in 1645, the Parliament Army won a decisive victory against the Royalist at Naseby. Uh, That this happened at at Naseby in North Hampshire. uh, And that the messages which comprise this book were preached by Burroughs in that year. So that would be um, probably the Presbyterians getting, and uh, more staunchly reformed, getting more religious freedom over against possibly the Congregationalists, possibly the Anglicans. Not sure exactly, but hopefully that sets some context for you. Uh, The next sentence is, Be instructed aright in this course and way that God is accustomed to walk in, and that will greatly help us to contentment. Three, it is the way of God to work by contraries, to turn the greatest evil into the greatest good. To grant great good after great evil is one thing, and to turn great evil into the greatest good is another, and yet that is God's way. The greatest good that God intends for his people, he many times works out of the greatest evil. The greatest light is brought out of the greatest darkness. I remember Luther has a striking expression for this. He says, it is the way of God. He humbles that he might exalt. He kills that he might make alive. He confounds that he might glorify. This is the way of God, he says, but everyone does not understand it. This is the art of arts and the science of sciences, the knowledge of knowledges. To understand this, That God, when he will bring life, brings it out of death. He brings joy out of sorrow, and he brings prosperity out of adversity. He, and many times, brings grace out of sin. That is, makes use of sin to work furtherance of grace. It is the way of God to bring all good out of evil, not only to overcome the evil, but to make the evil work toward the good. 
Now when the soul comes to understand this, it will take away our murmuring and bring contentment into spirits. But I fear there are but few who understand it aright. Perhaps they read of such things, and hear such things in a sermon, but they are not instructed in this by Jesus Christ, that this is the way of God, to bring the greatest good out of the greatest evil.